Trinity Church, it is great to see you today. Thank you for joining us on this last weekend of May. It's wild to think of where this pandemic time has started and where we're at today, but here we are, last weekend of May. Thank you again for inviting us into your home and letting us be a part of your weekend. My name is Todd Arnett, I'm the lead pastor here at Trinity Church. I'm so excited to get to look at God's Word with you today. I want to tell you this, I know, as you're doing this, by the way, you can open up your Bibles. We're in 1 Peter chapter 3. You join us today in a series called A People Prepared, and we're working our way passage through the book of 1 Peter, and we're at the end of chapter 3 today. So if you want to find your way there, if you need notes today, you'll notice there's a QR code below me. If you want to use your mobile device to come up and just scan that, it'll send you to a link, and you can either download those print them and use them, or just download them to your phone, and you'll have them available so you can track with us better today. We know that we are in a lot of flux. There is a lot of conversation about when we'll be meeting together again, and um, I know you're joining us online, so that question's at least been answered for this weekend. Let me tell you, I am keeping you up to date every midweek doing a video, and we shared some information with you already about this weekend, how we did an informal kind of just worship and prayer time. Look for more of that excuse me, related to Trinity on the lawn. But outside of that, we will keep you up to date. We will let you know. I'm just going to tell you in advance, it's going to be different. It's going to be different than what you remember, and we're going to have to be flexible and adaptable. Our staff has modeled this so well, and so I just want to encourage you to be ready to do the same. In the in-between time, let me share with you some Yay God moments. I'm really excited. We've been talking about a blood drive that we're hosting that's finally coming this next Wednesday, June the 3rd. We'll be hosting a blood drive at Trinity Church. Now, here's the Yay God part. June 3rd, not available. It's packed. We've already filled out every slot for that, and that's because of you and your desire to really see this be a blessing to our community. So I want to thank you for that. Thank you for literally putting your blood uh, on the line to be able to help people in need. That being said, we still have dates available for June the 24th, just two weeks later. These are on Wednesday afternoons from one in the afternoon to seven at night here on the campus. So I just want to encourage you, um, join us for the 24th, and let's continue to be one of the just the best organizations that are donating blood to meet needs here in our local community. Now, one thing I've been doing weekly is having a time on Sunday afternoons called Todd and Friends. We had a kind of a late minute shift this week, but I'm really excited. My friend Lee Cote is going to join us uh, Sunday afternoon, May the 31st at three o'clock on Instagram Live. Lee has become a friend of ours at Trinity Church over the last year and a half. He's an executive pastor at The Crossing, a church in Las Vegas, as well as a consultant with uh, Intentional Churches, which is how we got to know Lee. So I'd love for you to join me this uh, Sunday, May the 31st at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Instagram Live. Well, you are joining us in this series that we have been walking through, and what I've been doing is just weekly, especially for those that, of you that might be new to Trinity or new to this series with us, I've been giving some just um, updates as far as what we've been learning. And, and really, we've just kind of seen four big words that start with the letter H. Peter began, Peter is writing this letter. He is one of the original 12 disciples, one of the apostles sent to lead the church. And he's writing to a group of what he's called scattered exiles who are Jesus followers who are living under persecution in what is modern day Turkey. 
The first chapter, he talked a lot about the idea of hope, how they are to secure and anchor their hope in this living hope named Jesus who is outside of their circumstances. Then he transitioned, he talked about their need to be a holy people, like God is holy, so they're called to be set apart for his purpose. So hope and holiness are a lot of the themes in chapter one. But then at the end of chapter one and chapter two is all about a harmony, how there are to experience this kind of harmony with one another, not just the vertical relationship, but the horizontal relationships within the family of God. And then as we got to the end of chapter two and all throughout chapter three, there's been a lot of discussion on humility, humbling ourselves under the God-given authorities that are over us, whether they be in the government, whether they be um, those who would lead us in a workplace, whether they be even in marriage. And we've gotten to this idea of what it looks like following Jesus's pattern of suffering when we do good. So today we're going to finish off chapter three, and as we dive in, what we're going to see is the power of Jesus's resurrection, the power to save us. But what we're going to see in the middle of our passage today, I'm just going to tell you now, is one of the greatest theological conundrums that theologians and scholars struggle with. I'm going to take my best stab at it and share with you what I think this text is about, and it'll be fun to kind of walk that together. So here's our now what statement today, what we're going to be looking at, what we want to walk away with, and it's of great encouragement to us. Rejoice because you are saved by the resurrected Jesus who's in control of who's behind who's in control. I'm going to say that slow. Again, not for you, but for me. Rejoice because you are saved by the resurrected Jesus who's in control of who's behind who's in control. And we'll explain that as we finish up our time together today. Here's number one in your notes today. Jesus' suffering brought good for the divinely disapproved. Jesus' suffering brought good for the divinely disapproved. This is what I mean. We're in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. Read it out loud from where you're at with me right now. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. This is a powerful passage that has so much to say, and we're just going to kind of break it down phrase by phrase. What I want you to see, though, <coughs> excuse me, is that Peter is doing an amazing job of synthesizing uh, what a lot of other New Testament writers also said. So I want to show you a little bit of just the congruency of the truth and the teaching in the New Testament that we have. And all these references that he's using are other New Testament writers are saying similar things. And I just want you to see the soundness of the theology, the doctrine that's presented uh, in the New Testament. So it begins with this phrase that Jesus suffered once for sins. What that's referring to is he wasn't sacrificed over and over and again like the former covenant talked about where sacrifices were brought time and time again to simply be a band-aid over sin. Jesus suffered once for all and his sacrifice didn't provide a band-aid cure. And that only needed to happen one time. The author of Hebrews, he agrees with him. Look at this passage. Just as people are destined, read it with me, destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Watch. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. So we see this congruence in the New Testament that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient and it was different than the former covenant sacrifices because it was once for all. 
Then he goes on to say this powerful phrase, the righteous for the unrighteous. Now, when we hear that word, we hear a word that we think we use that word a lot in like our, our church context. It's a spiritual word to us. But it's interesting, Peter's readers would have heard that word through a legal lens. That's what these words in Koine Greek would have communicated a legality to them. They uh, communicated the idea that because Jesus was divinely approved by God, he was found in the law, the court of God as being approved. Um, that was true, but yet also what they would have understood themselves to be, the unrighteous are those that were described as being found guilty in God's court of law. So I want you to take a minute, and I just want you to process this with you. Think about what Jesus does at the cross on your behalf, on my behalf. That first off, we read that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, and rather than holding on to or taking his rightful place as king, he humbles himself, even to the point of death, death on a cross, and in doing so, he realizes that he is right before the Father, but he puts himself in a position to be the sacrifice for those who are divinely disapproved. That's powerful, and I want you to catch not only the weight, but I want you to catch the love. You see, Jesus did this willingly on your behalf because he deeply loves you. And, and that kind of transference is what happened. Now, what's great is to see the way the Apostle Paul also said something very similar. Look at this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Read it aloud with me. God made him who had no sin, Jesus, the righteous, to be sin, the unrighteous for us. Okay? God made him who had no sin, the righteous, to be sin for us, the unrighteous, so that in him we might become, we, the unrighteous, might become the righteousness of God. So this great exchange is mirrored again in Paul's writings uh, to the church at Corinth. So I just want you to again see this congruence that the New Testament is, besides just Peter saying these words, other New Testament authors are saying the same thing. And I want you to see this is what's so great today. What did all of this sacrifice once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, do? Jesus brought us to God. That's a fascinating phrase in our English translation, Jesus brought us to God. And here's what that means. It's a figure borrowed from those who would bring someone, uh, who would secure from someone the privilege of an interview with a sovereign. Let me say that again. It's a figure borrowed from those who secure for someone else the privilege of an interview with a sovereign. So someone who is so well known, someone who is so trusted by the one who rules the land on, on this human plane would be able to bring someone into the audience, into the presence of someone who is absolutely, completely in charge. That's what this word picture is that Peter's readers would have understood. To bring you to God means to be able to say that because of this sacrifice made the righteous for the unrighteous, we, the divinely disapproved in the court of God's law, can actually have an audience, can have, be in the presence of Almighty God. That's an amazing outcome, an amazing consequence for what happened when Jesus suffered for doing good.
We've seen that thread all throughout this part of the book, and I want to keep saying to you, when we struggle, when we might be at times persecuted for following Jesus, just know for Jesus, the outcome was our salvation. What good is God up to and what he might bring your way as well? Number two in your notes today, though symbolized in baptism, it's Jesus' resurrection that saves you. Though it's a symbolic picture in baptism, we'll look at that. It's Jesus' resurrection that saves you. Let's look at this passage together. It's long. Read it with me. He, this is just following the last words we read in verse, it's still in verse 18. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. It, in it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, we're going to dive in. Uh, I told you earlier today, this is an incredibly challenging passage for theologians over centuries. I am not going to conquer it in a few minutes with you today, but let me give you my best take on what this passage is communicating. Here's why it's controversial for a few reasons. First, that Jesus was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. The grammar for this uh, phrase in the original Greek language can have so many different outcomes. It can go all kinds of different ways. Namely, in the NIV translation I just read from, spirit was capitalized, so referring to the Holy Spirit. But as I was reading different commentaries, Edwin Blum, I believe, gives a paraphrase for this pat, this. Uh, this passage, and he really communicates it well, trying to help us separate out what's being said. Look up on the screen. This is his paraphrase of that passage. He was put to death in the human sphere of existence, so in the flesh, put to death in the human sphere of existence, but was made alive, not necessarily big S spirit, but in the resurrection sphere of existence. So meaning that there's this spiritual realm that though the body is dead, the human form, the spirit is made alive, in which this state of existence, he made a proclamation of his victory to the fallen angels. So at least in this first idea of what is going on with these states of death and resurrection, I think Blum's explanation is the best as far as my study is that there's these two ideas of existence, one in the human body, one in the spiritual realm, and it's in that spiritual realm Jesus was made alive and made this proclamation. Um, then the kind of question it leads us to, well, what kind of proclamation and who are these fallen angels that are being referenced? I think one thing that's going to help us are the Apostle Paul's words to the Colossian church. Take a look. This is how he says it. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, we're going to see that phrase again later today, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, even in the original first century, 
Paul's readers would have been, who triumphs over the cross? The cross is an agent of death for the, the one who was sacrificed on it. Paul flips it on its head and says the cross is actually a form of triumph. Now, in that, in the verse we just looked at, this phrase, made a public spectacle of them, simply means to expose, to make an example of. So what was maybe hidden or, or confused in a large group, it's shining the light on them and saying, hey, I'm going to show you this is a problem. It's used negatively, so it's not a positive term, and it's used negatively. It says, I'm going to demonstrate the truth of this situation by shining light on it. So what we see is that... Um, as Jesus did this, he didn't go to these imprisoned spirits, as we read, to proclaim the gospel. I know former translations I remember reading as a young boy had that idea that he preached the gospel. That would have been a totally different Greek word. This is just simply making a proclamation, saying something is true, and how that to me seems in alignment with what Paul is saying, that he made this public spectacle triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus came and he exposed them as members of conquered forces that they were, demonstrated by the fact that they were imprisoned and that they were disarmed. When you think through a military term, everybody gets it at that point, you lose. You're imprisoned, you have no arms, that's a problem. You're demonstrated as being the, the, the one who's been defeated. His proclamation erases any confusion over who is the victor and who is defeated. Now, there are a number of passages in the Bible that talk about God celebrating his victory over defeated enemies. And I know over the course of time, I have talked to Christians who are either confused by those passages or even just downright embarrassed because it seems like, why would God gloat? Or why would God celebrate these victories over his enemies? But when I hear that conversation, and I, I, I've heard that a few times, I just simply ask them the question, you've never been in battle, have you? You've never been in battle, have you? Because you see, it's one thing to be competitive and to want to defeat a rival. Just recently, we uh, ESPN finished airing a 10-part documentary on Michael Jordan and the Bulls and really that whole team in the decade of the 90s, but especially the last dance as it was called. And I had a great time. My son and daughter-in-law uh, were visiting this last week and loved debriefing it. Well, my favorite part of that whole documentary was that my wife, Joanna, and my daughter, Aaliyah, who were at home with me, they were irritated by the fact I hadn't invited them to watch. I'm like, are you kidding me? This is great. Yes, watch this with me. So we picked it up, I think, at week uh, episode five, and they went back and watched the previous episodes. And the last night it was on, man, we all gathered around and watched together. I love that I got to share this Michael Jordan and Bulls experience with my wife and my daughter. It was really great. In that, though, what was interesting, what was demonstrated in this documentary time and time again is that Michael Jordan at times even created it wasn't even a legitimate thing, but created in his mind an excessive rivalry to drive to increase his competitive drive. That's different from what we're talking about. Because you see, Jesus was not fighting for a ring or a trophy. Jesus was fighting for people, like we've already said earlier today, that he deeply loves and so in that concept, when that's true, when you're fighting for people you're willing to die for, look in your notes, there is a genuine relief 
when your enemy is conquered and an appropriate celebration that ensues now that the threat is no longer at hand. It's appropriate in battle when you are the victor to indeed have this sense of, of elation and even celebration over the fact that that enemy is no longer a threat to those you love and those you've been willing to die for. That's what's going on in this passage. And so that's what this raised in resurrection sphere of influence Jesus did. That's what he did. He went down and spelled out defeat to literally a captive audience. I'm not a very punny person, but I killed it on that one. Okay? He spells out defeat to a captive audience because he has made a redeeming sacrifice for you and me. Now, who more specifically was this captive audience? Another area of controversy for sure. Peter himself writes about this same group of the demonic world in his next letter. Take a look on the screen from 2 Peter chapter 2. Read it with me. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on all its ungodly people, but protected Noah, look at this phrase, a preacher of righteousness and seven others. So what we see is that interestingly enough, a, a uh, an idea, a group of, of beings that are very hard to understand in the, the sum total of Scripture, Peter, in both of his letters, talks about them, describes them, and what the issues were. We read that these were a group of demons, fallen angels, who sinned in the unique way during the days of Noah, and subsequently were imprisoned and were not free to go about with their evil behavior because of what they had done. Now, in both of these letters, he writes that Noah escaped God's wrath that we read about in Genesis 6 and 7, and God literally, just think about this, of all of his salvation for the human race at that time was limited to eight people. That's all that were saved, Noah and his family, and were put back on the earth to basically hit the reset button and start over again. There's one uh, short book in the New Testament also, the book of Jude, that also speaks to this group of demons. Let's look at it from Jude verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So basically, we have three passages in the New Testament in these letters, 1st, 2nd Peter, and Jude, that all seem to be talking about this same group of beings. They did something disobedient in the darkest hours of human history during a time when humanity was so evil that God acted to destroy everyone on earth except for one family. Everyone else was drowned. Now, I want to say this. I'm not trying to be, I'm actually just trying to have a moment of levity and have some fun, and I'm absolutely not picking on you if this is what your child's nursery looks like. But I just have to say, it just makes me laugh when many of us, especially in, from a Christian perspective, will have our children's nursery, their mobile, everything set up with a Noah's Ark motif. Here's some pictures just to remind you of, look at how cute that is, right? These are invitations to a birthday shower that are going to be all about this Noah's Ark theme, or a mobile that hangs over a baby's head of, of really cute animals in a rainbow. It's great. Even a bed shaped like maybe what the Ark ish look like. 
And here's just what makes me laugh about the whole thing. All of these things represent the single greatest destruction of humanity and what was going on in the world except for what was saved in a boat. And that's what hangs above your child's. I just love it. I love it. All kinds of destruction. And you might say, well, Todd, I just love the beauty of what God did. I'll, I'll go with you. That's awesome. But it just makes me laugh because this is something we can take for granted. This worldwide. And by the way, there's a lot of discussion. Was the flood regional? Was it worldwide? Here's what I'm saying. Peter and Jude seem to think so. Jesus referenced Noah as well in the flood. And so the idea is the New Testament seems to say there was such a thing. And so the reality of all these things simply points to this, that during that time, there was great judgment that happened. And this evil contribution that these demons made was, was so unique that they were punished in a, in a way that is, is exemplary, like it doesn't happen to any others in the demonic realm uh, because of what they did. Now, we don't often speak a lot or spend a lot of time describing disobedient demonic spirits, but watch this. I believe that Peter brings them up in this part of 1 Peter 3 because of what we're going to see by the time we end today. I believe he's going to connect a dot. In the meantime, I want you to see the way that the flood is used as a picture of baptism and what that does for the, dis, for the obedient, not the disobedient, the obedient follower of Jesus. Look at the phrase we read. This water symbolizes baptism that saves you also. Now, first off, it's important to note that when the Bible says, we had read this earlier, that it's going to talk about something symbolically, that should alert you like this is meant to be a symbol. Don't second guess it. This is what I'm saying. So what Peter is saying is that this worldwide flood that brought great destruction actually was a symbol, what, what is demonstrated in what we understand to be believer's baptism. That can be a little bit confusing, but I love the way that commentator Warren Wearsby put it. Take a look at his words. They're in your notes and on the screen. This is what he says. The flood pictures the death, burial, and resurrection. The waters buried the earth in judgment, but they also lifted Noah and his family up to safety. The early church saw in the ark a picture of salvation. Noah and his family were saved by faith because they believed God and entered into his ark of safety. So sinners are saved by faith when they trust Christ and become one with him. That's a so well stated and such a beautiful picture of what baptism is representing. But you read a word in there like I did that said that baptism saves us. Now, that's challenging because we know that there are a few pockets, even within the evangelical world, that would say that's, that baptism is essential for salvation. We don't believe that here at Trinity Church, and we don't believe that the rest of the New Testament teaches that. But what we do see in this concept, and this is what's beautiful when you read the rest of the passage, if you only see that soundbite, it can trip you up. But when you read the bigger part of the passage, uh, Peter goes on to say, it saves you in that it's a picture of what we do once we have entrusted ourselves to Christ through obedience to, to demonstrate this symbol again, as it were, the symbol of the flood. Um, I think what really helps us kind of 
siphon out that last verse is actually, and I rarely do this. If you've been watching with me for a long time, I rarely quote and use other translations of the Bible, but I really believe the New Living Translation just nails it on this verse. Take a look at this with me. This is a verse we already read, 1 Peter 3, 21, but read aloud with me the New Living Translation version. And that water is a picture, the symbol of baptism, which now saves you, watch, not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. It is effective, watch why, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I think what that translation helps us understand, the waters of baptism, they don't clean dirt off your body, and they themselves don't save you. But it's a response in obedience that demonstrates that God has done a work because he's affected, transformed, cleared your conscience. If you're watching today and you have, not, you have put your faith in Jesus, but have not yet taken that step of baptism, I would just want to encourage you, man, the moment we can gather together, and, and when we do that back in this building, the baptismal is right here behind me, we're going to get those waters in there, and we're going to baptize people who've just been waiting during this quarantine season. I put my faith in Christ, but I haven't taken that step that demonstrates that kind of obedience, that demonstrates that symbolic picture of going down in death and being raised up to life. And that's so powerful to me. And I want to encourage you, if you haven't uh, taken that step, be the first one to sign up when we do a baptism class once we're back on our campus. Peter finishes this part of the passage with the potency of how we're saved because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not just that Jesus was raised to life in that resurrection sphere, but also bodily in, in the human sphere of existence as well. And that's what we celebrate on that third day on Easter is Jesus' bodily resurrection. Finally today, in your notes, number three, spiritual powers submit to the risen Jesus. This is what I think everything that we're looking at today leads up to. Spiritual powers submit to the risen Jesus. Look at this, 1 Peter 3, 22. It's extending that thought. Jesus, who has gone into heaven, read it with me, and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. What's been interesting about this part of our our read in First Peter is, remember we talked about that key word, humility. And what's fascinating is on the one hand, Jesus demonstrated the most intense humility as the God-man going to the cross on our behalf. But what we find here is, is not a humility on his part, but a humility on these spiritual beings and powers that submit to him. We've talked a lot about the Christian's posture of submission, but the idea is what we see here at the end is this submission to Jesus as king. Peter was an eyewitness to this ascension that he's writing about here at, in chapter 3. And, um, and I think about that, and I think about all the range of emotions that he must have felt in those last days in his time with Jesus. Think of just the joy and the excitement, the anticipation when Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem. Then think about that was followed by fear and confusion when Jesus, the rabbi, the Messiah, was arrested. And then that was followed by deep sorrow and loss when Jesus died on a Roman cross. 
That was followed by confusion and even joy when he experienced the risen Jesus. And then finally at this last place, this culminated with a sense of this really imbalance, both loss and commissioning as Jesus ascended back to the Father's side. Peter experienced <clears throat> every part of that reality. We read about it, Peter lived it. And, and this is last line that I want us to consider today of what happened when Jesus went back to the Father's right hand. It's in your notes today. Let's explain. Jesus is in control of who's behind who's in control. Jesus is in control of who's behind who's in control. Let me, let me explain. <clears throat> we have talked about in this series how incredibly comforting it is to know that God is in control of who's in control. God appoints not just structures, but literally people to serve in roles of leadership for a time. But this passage says something else. What we know is that if you might feel at times someone you can think of right now or someone you've thought of in the past as an enemy, you truly only have one enemy. Because every human being is, is made in, is fashioned in the image of God. And as image bearers are not both uh, that which is born sinful, but also that which can be redeemed. So every single human enemy you've ever had is redeemable. What's truly, who is truly your enemy is who's behind, who Satan uses as human pawns, that that's him. That's the enemy is the deceiver and his legion of demons. So truly your only enemy is at a spiritual level and in a spiritual realm, not who you see and who you interact with because every single human enemy you've ever had has a propensity to be redeemed by Jesus and what he's done. So if we understand then that it's the spiritual forces that are truly, as it were, the puppets that are leading those that are in control, realize these last words that Peter says. Jesus is in control of who's behind who's in control. I just think that does something powerfully for not only Peter's readers 2,000 years ago, but for us. This is a huge idea. You may be suffering right now because of the challenges that you're go through, going through. You might even be someone who is suffering like Peter's readers were in the first century because you're following Jesus. But not only has Jesus made your pardon by suffering and doing good, not only has he left you a pattern so that you would know how to suffer for doing good as well, but you need not fear because Jesus is somehow, uh, you, let me rephrase that, you don't need to fear that Jesus is somehow not in control when your world seems out of control because Jesus is in control of who's behind who's in control. I know it's a lot of words and a lot of back and forth, but if you just stop and ponder that for a minute, it's a powerful reality that gives you great confidence in who it is you're following. That means that you can fully entrust yourself to God who is absolutely sovereign and in control of everything. He's in control of this pandemic. He's in control of the tough spots in your marriage. He's in control when your children are off the rails. He's in control when you lose your job. He's in control when you don't know who you are. He is absolutely in control. He's in control when you need a miracle 
when the circumstances around you absolutely demand the supernatural. And so as we finish today, I thought it would be most appropriate. We alluded to the book. We read a verse from this short letter called the book of Jude. And I want to read the doxology, the last words from this letter, to bring a source of encouragement, to bring a source of confidence to you today. Because it's this Jesus we've been talking about, the risen, resurrected Jesus, that is extolled at the end of Jude. Look at these words. Read them aloud with me. Jude 24 and 25, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, watch this, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, look at these words, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore, amen. Those words are for you today. Jesus is absolutely in control. He's never left his throne, even though your life may be so challenging right now. Here is our takeaway. Here's our now what for this week. Rejoice because you've been saved by the resurrected Jesus who's in control of who's behind, who's in control. Let me pray for us. Father God, we come before you today with these words that just exalt the power and the authority and the character of the risen Jesus. And the fact, God, that we are on his side, that we have been rescued, that we have been brought to God through him, today we do exactly what that now what statement says, we rejoice. We are so incredibly fortunate to be loved and to be rescued so well. I want to pause today. If you're here watching, maybe for the first time, maybe you just stumbled onto us. Maybe you just were breezing through your Facebook feed and you saw this service. Maybe you just happened to see us on YouTube. But if you're here today and you're listening and you have never responded to this amazing invitation of God's love through what Jesus has accomplished for you, I want to tell you no matter who you are, no matter where you are, God loves you. And it begins, your relationship with him begins with A, admitting that you need him. Admitting that you're a sinner who needs a savior. That you are divinely, as we saw that word today, disapproved. And you were born that way into this world, so was I and everyone else. B, believe. Believe that this Jesus we've talked about, this risen conqueror, he's the only savior available. And C is choose. Choose today to say, Jesus, I, I receive, I'm accepting what you've done for me, and I bring my life to your feet. And I simply ask, I want to put my hope, my trust, my confidence in you, not in myself, and I want to follow you with my life. You can make that decision right where you sit, in your living room, in your car, in your bedroom, wherever you are today. And I would encourage you, don't take another step till you respond to Jesus. Father, we love you. We are so grateful for these words that are so encouraging, the kind of courage we need to keep going another week. We love you and we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.